Hello, you're listening to The Sower, a podcast of the Ciceronian Society. The Ciceronian Society is a community of Christian scholars and public intellectuals committed to the examination of three core themes, tradition, place, and things divine, and their role in a civilization built upon the principles common to the traditions of historic Christianity. To learn more about us, our events, the podcast, our journal, Pietas, to sign up for our newsletter and make your tax-deductible gift, please go to ciceronianciety.org. That's C-I-C-E-R-O-N-I-A-N-C-S-O-C-I-E-T-Y.org. I'm Josh Bowman, Vice President of the Ciceronian Society. And before introducing our guests, please join me in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray, O Lord, that you would bless our conversation and that all we say and do would bring glory and honor to you. Amen. We're recording this on the afternoon of April 19th, and I have the distinct privilege of introducing you to Dr. Kevin R.C. Gutzman. Kevin is a professor and former chairman in the Department of History at Western Connecticut State University. He has written six books, two of which were bestsellers, and I'll mention three of these other books, all of which I'd recommend to our listeners, including Thomas Jefferson, Revolutionary, James Madison and the Making of America, and Virginia's American Revolution. Today, however, we'll be discussing his book, The Jeffersonians, The Visionary Presidencies of Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, published by St. Martin's Press. The book is a fascinating and detailed look at the 24 years' worth of presidential leadership from Jefferson's inauguration in 1801 and through the two terms of James Madison and then to the end of James Monroe's second term in 1825. So welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Happy to be here. Excellent. Well, I want to begin simply by asking... Uh, why you decided to write this book. Lots of stuff's been written on, uh, you know, Jefferson, Madison, and et cetera, not as much on Monroe. Um, but what did you think was missing in the scholarship surrounding this part of the early republic? What, what set you on this uh, task? Well, um, in 2012, my book, James Madison and the Making of America, was published. Mm-hmm. It's a study of Madison's history as a constitution maker, and so it has some attention to his presidency, but that's not the focus. Mm-hmm. And I had the Pulitzer-winning historian Daniel Walker Howe write me a cover blurb for that book. And when he gave me the blurb, which was a very nice one, he said, I would have liked to have seen you pay more attention to Madison's presidency. So when I finished my book immediately preceding this one, which was called Thomas Jefferson Revolutionary, it's about... Jefferson's political program, I turned to this idea of writing more about Madison's administration, and after devoting a bit of attention to that, I realized that one really couldn't tell the story of the Madison administration without starting with the Jefferson administration. And naturally enough, uh, it became clear to me writing that one that, well, really these three presidencies at the beginning of the 19th century were seen by the presidents and by their party allies in Congress as one continuous administration. It happened that although Jefferson has always been a kind of favorite topic among both scholars and the book-buying public, and although there's been a lot of attention to Madison since the 1988 publication of Drew McCoy's book, Last of the Fathers, there has been no previous study taking up the topic of these three continuous administrations at the beginning of the 19th century, which are the only instance 
in American history in which we've had three consecutive two-term administrations of the same party. And not only were they of the same party, but Jefferson and Madison were each other's best friends in the world and closest political allies. Monroe had been both Madison's Secretary of War and his Secretary of State, besides Jefferson's law student. So any two of them would have been the best friends who'd ever been president. Any two of them would have been the closest allies who'd ever been president. And it seemed obvious that people would be interested in the subject. As I began working on it, I found it was more interesting than I'd anticipated. <laughs> so here we are. Yeah. It's, 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 it's really great to cover, cover this period. It's a... <laughs> Uh, they call it the era of good feelings, you know, and I, um, when, when reading about these, these gentlemen, you, you realize, I mean, certainly it wasn't uh, exactly all, all roses. Um, the War of 1812 did happen, um, and there was plenty of, there's plenty of, of, of turmoil, but at the same time, like the, the, the friendship that exists in kind of this higher order among the elites is, is encouraging. It's not something you see as often today. Um, I'm curious, though, going back, so let, let's, let's start with Jefferson. Um, you know, for those less familiar with the debates of the founding generation between Jeffersonian Republicans and Federalists, in fact, in many instances, at least with my students, the, the, they've only been introduced to it through the Hamilton musical uh, before my class, right, <laughs> which is always a problem we all face, right? Uh, but how would you explain, like, what makes Jefferson's view and what he believed that he had, uh, what makes his view distinctive and what that in terms of uh, putting all these uh, presidents together, not only as presidents, as political leaders, but also as thinkers together. Um, in, in other words, and I'm having a hard time asking this question, but what did he believe he had accomplished by the, the so-called revolution of 1800? Um, and what, what binds all them together intellectually, in a sense, that makes them such good friends and such good allies? Well, I don't focus on one of these three administrations more than the other two. But the section of the book on the Jefferson administration is slightly longer than the other two, and the reason is that it begins with a detailed consideration of Jefferson's first inaugural address. And, of course, we now know, looking back on it, that what he did in his first inaugural address was lay out the program that the three of them would be following for the next 24 years. Um, but essentially what he did was lay out his own political principles, which he thought had been vindicated as Americans' political principles by his victory in the presidential election of 1800 and 1801. I say in 1801 because, of course, he finally was elected president by the House of Representatives in 1801. So um, what do they stand for? Well, they stand for limited central government, low taxes, if not no taxes, uh, local self-control, avoiding wars, avoiding government debt, and uh, essentially for having the federal government in Jefferson hopes eventually all the other state governments will follow Virginia's lead in this, um, in having people be left to uh, make their decisions about metaphysical questions for themselves, not having them be dictated by a government. So all these principles, essentially, uh, he thinks have been vindicated by his victory. Of course, we must never slight the extent to which Jefferson thought highly of himself. <laughs> he thought, <laughs> essentially, that uh, what the revolution of 1800 and 1801 proved was that 
Jefferson's principles were Americans' principles. And uh, by the time the book ends, of course, if he had needed any convincing that he was certain about that, the Federalist Party essentially ceased to exist. So when his former political lieutenant, James Monroe, was elected president, I'm sorry, was re-elected in 1820, he got all but one vote in the Electoral College, and the one vote against him was from a fellow Republican who just didn't, he said he didn't like his personality, he didn't think it was appropriate to the presidency. So the American voters had basically given their imprimatur to the idea that really Jeffersonian uh, politics were American politics. The way he put it in his first inaugural address, which I tell my students is one of maybe, I don't know, two or three in American history that are worth reading, is we have called by different names, brethren of the same principle, we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists. And there are people in the audience who later writing accounts of this said that when he said this, people gasped, like the whole room, people just gasped. And the reason was that politics in the 1790s had been so angry and violent and just just obsessive. And what Jefferson was saying essentially was, look, um, we, all, we all essentially agree what the American Revolution was about. Now, of course, the people in that room didn't all agree what the American right, Revolution right, was yeah. about. But uh, Jefferson's idea was that there, there hadn't really been popular disagreement. He thought that the, the special place of President Washington in Americans' esteem had enabled his lieutenant, Alexander Hamilton, to push a program that otherwise people wouldn't have accepted. And now with Washington deceased and Hamilton no longer in federal office, with the uh, enshrinement of Jeffersonianism in um, government's uh, leadership by the people's will, um, the people had finally seen this clearly, and now things would be this way forever. That was essentially the way he saw it. And, of course, what ended up happening through time was <clears throat> that, more or less, his principles worked in government, somewhat accidentally, but they worked in his administration for the first seven years, I think one can reasonably say, and um, that didn't surprise him at all. Yeah, it's interesting when you describe the, the principles of Jeffersonianism, if, if you can call it that. Uh, I, I, I'm always hesitant to to put an ism on it uh, in the in the spirit of conservatism, right? You don't want to make it an ideology, but at the same time, it all, it sounded very libertarian. Is that taking it too far? I mean, is, is it too far to call it libertarian? Obviously, that word didn't exist yet, but I think it was more or less libertarian. It's not that Jefferson didn't believe that government should do anything. But he certainly thought that the central government should do almost nothing. <laughs> if, right, right. If the people were, if the people running the federal government were conducting federal policy correctly, he believed that the country could stay out of wars, and having stayed out of wars, they wouldn't need armies and navies, and that meant they wouldn't need taxes. And so, it, it really was pretty much a libertarian vision. What I show, of course, in the book is that they tried this. And one result of it was that the people re-elected them and re-elected them and re-elected them. But another result of it was that a foreign army marched into Washington, burned down the Capitol, burned down the White House, burned down the War Department, State Department, Treasury Department. The president uh, hopped on a horse and rode around D.C. for a couple of days looking for his wife. 
and it was a humiliation. I think it actually might reasonably be said to have been the most humiliating event in American military history. And this was a predictable outcome of the Republican Party's foreign policy. In fact, not only was it predictable, it was predicted. People said when the Republicans were pushing for a declaration of war in 1812, people who disapproved of the idea said, what, you have no men, you have no ships, you have no money. How are you going to make war on Britain? <laughs> this just seems, in retrospect, to have been a completely ideological decision. It was not based on we might what we might think of as reasonable calculations of what the government was capable of doing. But Jefferson, the former president by this time, wrote as these decisions are being made, he thought a war uh, with the British would be a matter of just a, a few weeks marching. So he thought America could just launch an army into Canada, and within a few weeks it would have taken Montreal and Quebec, and then it could negotiate with the British to return them in exchange for the British allowing America to have free trade. And, really, of course, nothing like that happened. Nothing right. like that at all happened. It, it, it really is astonishing for all the, the, the brilliance of these men, um, both Jefferson and Madison in particular. It, it's, it just seems to be a failure of imagination. They, what, what do you think is behind that? I know at in, in, in one point, you know, one, one of the points you make is that, Madis, that Madison's argument that, that America's capacity for economic coercion was, he, he overestimated it. Um, perhaps, but I mean, is is that is that enough to explain kind of how they ended up in this debacle? Um, is I'm just wondering how did they fail so miserably? Now we're we're lucky we came out with just you know a, a few burnt down buildings. I don't want to minimize that, but I mean the fact that we came you know out in essentially mostly one piece is amazing, uh, given the failure the failures of of leadership and, and thinking there. But what what do what do you think was behind that? Well. Uh... There is a story that at one point in the war, the British Prime Minister called in the greatest general in British history, the Duke of Wellington, and he said to him, now this is before Waterloo, he said to him, I'm going to give you an army and I'm going to send you to North America. And Wellington said something like, okay, then I conquer the United States, then what? And so the Prime Minister said, well... I guess we'll have to have a treaty. <laughs> so he, he essentially, he, that was the whole argument that Wellington had to make, that this wasn't going to do any good once you conquer the United States. They're not ever going to accept that you've permanently uh, eliminated local self-government. So right. we'll go ahead and negotiate. But the point is, the Americans ended up with a treaty that restored the status quo antebellum, that is, that returned the borders between the United States and Canada to what they'd been before, and um, in which America retained its claim on what we now think of as the Midwest and so on. The only reason why that was able to happen is just the British decided North America wasn't really worth its effort. Like, why, why are we going to continue to fight? Of course, we'll win whenever we have any kind of battlefield confrontation, but in the end, we're going to have to negotiate for some kind of treaty, so why don't we just go ahead and do it now? So in other words... Um, Nothing about the Republican view of the way the war would work was uh, validated by experience. It did not at all go as they expected. Madison had had the idea from the 1780s. Of course, by this time we're talking about Secretary of State Madison. He'd had the idea in the early 1780s that the United States could use economic coercion 
to get European countries to yield Americans free trade. And apparently he agreed with um, his friend, uh, that is Jefferson's friend, uh, Tom Paine, who said in a pamphlet that uh, Europeans would be dependent upon American foodstuffs so long as Europe was in the habit of eating. Well, this proved untrue. <laughs> you could not make the British yield anything in particular by depriving them of American timber or fish or wheat or rice or tobacco. And, of course, it hadn't worked at the Revolution, and it wasn't going to work now. So, um, as I said, ultimately the British decided, well, yeah, we have a military advantage. We can basically impose anything we want on them, but we know they're ungovernable, so why not just negotiate a treaty? Mm-hmm. It had nothing to do with either statesmanship or military daring do on the side of the United States. What? Uh, it really is a, a fascinating. I grew up in um, one of the towns that was named after um, James Monroe. Of course, James Monroe did uh, his tour of uh, of the country. He did three nationwide tours at the time, resulting in a bunch of places being named Monroe, including my hometown of Monroe, Michigan. And we grew up, you know, knowing about the War of eighteen twelve. And um, I, I I can remember that there was certainly there's a a valorization, a a celebration that hey, we made it through this. But the more I learned growing up, thinking, what did we do? <laughs> um, right. I'm actually sitting about 15 miles from Monroe, Connecticut. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Is that also another example of a place that was named after him? There I you go. Yeah. And I'm actually in Danbury, the, the, of course, town made famous by Jefferson. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because of the Danbury Baptist. Yeah. Um, I, it's, it really is fascinating. Now, one of the things, and I, this is kind of a larger, broad, broader question, because we started talking about how Jefferson felt vindicated that his views were the the American views, um, to what extent then though is is the transition from him from Monroe to John Quincy Adams to Jackson is what what survived of Jeffersonian thought in that in that process? Now I, I know this is not a book about John Quincy Adams and 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 Jackson, but like looking ahead to this. What was it that that changed? What what was lost in the process of of moving to uh, Jacksonian thought um, from this period that you cover? Like what what um, what what have we left behind? In, in, in I guess in that respect. Well, I'm actually thinking about having my next book project be about Quincy Adams and Calhoun, who have a very very interesting relationship at the highest levels of the federal government, including being in Monroe's cabinet together, where they were both exemplary cabinet members. Um, but my my current book, the one we're talking about, (laughs) ends with Quincy Adams' inaugural address and Jefferson's response to it. And Quincy Adams in his inaugural address just laid out a wish list of everything somebody who didn't think there were any particular limits on the federal government's power might propose that the federal government should do. And Jefferson reading this was just, just apoplectic. So he One thing he did was he wrote a letter to his friend John Adams, with whom his friendship had been renewed, and congratulated him and and kind of uh, shared in his feeling about having his son uh, elected to the presidency and and told him how how wonderful a blessing that was for him. But on the other hand, Jefferson recommended, he floated to his friend, former President Madison, a uh, new set of resolutions that Virginia's legislature should adopt, essentially saying that this 
whole program was intolerable and Virginia would resist it. So as far as he was concerned, Quincy Adams' inaugural address took him right back to 1798. So he was right back to the idea that Virginia should resist uh, excessive federal uh, self-assertion to violence if necessary. And that was, of course, the way Jefferson had thought about the relationship between Virginia and, and the mother country, between Virginia and the uh, con Confederation, between Virginia and the Federalist administrations of the 1790s. Seemingly, at the end of the book, we see, I don't really spell this out, but uh, I kind of leave it open describing the way Jefferson's uh, reacting to it for readers to draw their own conclusions, but it seems to him that Quincy Adams' election and then the vector he intends to launch the United States down uh, throw the whole enterprise back into doubt. Right. It, it, it leaves open an opportunity for Jackson as well, I mean, in the sense that he can resist it in his own very, very Andrew Jackson way. Yeah, actually, um, we do see very interesting relationship between President Monroe and Jackson in the last part of the book, of course, where um, Jackson is a very significant figure after the Battle of New Orleans, and uh, President Monroe inartfully kind of sucks up to him, and I say something like, one wonders reading these letters whether Jackson thought they were as transparently manipulative as we must. <laughs> um, so kind of ham-handed on the part of Monroe, but it was pretty obvious that Jackson was going to remain a popular figure for a long time, and Monroe had to deal with that. He didn't like it either. Of course, Jefferson thought Monroe, that uh, Jackson was his worst fears realized. Here we have a kind of ungovernable general who's very popular because of his conquests, and this seemed to be dangerous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's an interesting moment. Uh, I, I look forward to reading that. that. That next book, I encourage you down that path. Now, I, we, we've kind of talked a little bit about the overall broad view of this, but there's there's some nuggets in here, if you will, um, that I, I thought were interesting. I just wanted to draw out some particular characters that are less well-known and particular moments that are less well-known am among the general public. One of the ones that you talked about, and I'm, I just want you to explain what it is, because this is actually the first time I've encountered it. Um, I did not know about a New England secessionist plot of 1804. I mean... It, it, what was that? Um, tell us more about that, because that seems to be a pretty, pretty big moment that I had never heard of. Well, New England sectionalism is a major force through this whole period. New Englanders are unhappy, of course, with seeing their party uh, ejected from control, both of the executive branch and of the Congress. And uh, many of them have the idea that the Republicans are on the exact wrong path when it comes to foreign policy. They see Bonaparte, um, then the Emperor Napoleon, um, as essentially an anti-Christian figure. And they see the British as fighting for Christian Europe. And it seems that by taking a hostile approach to the British, that the Republicans are essentially siding with Napoleon, which wouldn't have been shocking to somebody who lived then because, of course, back in the 1790s, leading figures like Jefferson and Monroe had been publicly enthusiastic about the French Revolution. Jefferson, I think, was about the last significant American figure who was still optimistic about the French Revolution. 
So if you were a if you were a politically aware Federalist, um, you were already going to be unhappy with the fact that your party, and not only your party, but when it came to the major positions, um, people from New England were no longer going to have a lot of say in the government. And here you have the Republicans' foreign policy turning out to be, from the Federalist point of view, about as bad as you could have feared. So they didn't like that at all. And they didn't like the fact that it seemed likely after the Louisiana Purchase that the future was going to be Jeffersonian because you were just going to have a whole continent into which people could move and be independent freeholders. And that was the opposite of New England social, religious, political organization. And Jefferson, of course, thought that was true too. <laughs> so uh, some, of them, some of them talked privately and publicly about the idea of secession. And it wasn't only in New England. Gouverneur Morris, who of course is a native New Yorker who had represented Pennsylvania in the Philadelphia Convention and then had been a senator after the Philadelphia Convention, um, he was in on this idea of, session to, of secession of the Northeast too, not only New England, but also New York. So um, that's an ongoing problem. When the War of 1812 comes, there ends up being a convention at Hartford called by the Massachusetts legislature to coordinate the New England state's essentially opposition to the federal administration and to the war. And uh, it, it was thought then not only by Republicans, but also by some Federalists that that was what they had in mind. In fact, Quincy Adams, who had been a Federalist senator uh, from Massachusetts, quit the Federalist Party over the Federalists' um, behavior during the War of 1812. He thought they were essentially disloyal, which arguably they were. So um, that's what that was about. That's fascinating. I, I, it, I don't know how I... I mean, there's, there's so many things I'm, I, I'm amazed at. I mean, this is, this is, I tell my students, I say, you, you get a bachelor's degree to realize you don't know anything. You get a master's degree to realize you don't know anything and there's nothing you can do about it. And you get a PhD because you lost your mind. And I continue to, to be amazed at everything I don't know about American history. But it's such a fascinating point of, of time. And there's a lot of great characters here. Um, right. I want to focus... very interesting people. Actually, they're just... The hardest part of writing the book was deciding what not to include. But one of my favorite... Uh, coincidences in the book is that John Quincy Adams, we've said, was Secretary of State under Monroe, and one day he completed the negotiation of the Transcontinental Treaty with his uh, Spanish counterpart in Washington, and of course in those days Washington was just a, really literally was a swamp with some houses around it, and um, so he finished his work on one end of the village, and he was walking back toward his place up by Capitol Hill. And when he got to his boarding house, if you were a congressman, you didn't rent a house because they only were there for a few months every other year. So you would stay in what amounted to barracks or a dormitory with other members of Congress. And so when he got to his boarding house, he found that the other people who lived in the same boarding house with him, the day he signed the Transcontinental Treaty, which extended America's borders all the way to the Pacific Ocean, they had spent their day arguing in the Supreme Court the case of McCulloch versus Maryland. The same day. Just to, you know, and I, I, I ask you, what, what day in American history was more important than that? That's just kind of amazing. So people who don't know, uh, 
McCulloch versus Maryland essentially is the basis of American constitutional law. It, it, essentially, it wrote the Hamiltonian version of the authority of Congress into constitutional law, where it remains today. So, yeah, well, whatever you think of it, that's what happened. Yeah, no, you're right. And I mean, it's 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 you, you can't. Uh... It'd be hard to un- to overstate the importance of that moment. Wow! I did, the fact that it happens on the same day is astonishing. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, moving on from there, I, I want to talk about just uh, three different people that I I, I I guess you could say I found in the book that I think um, are, are underappreciated or uh, whose whose contribution might be more significant. Let me guess. One of them is Albert Gallatin. That's the first one. How'd you know? Um, part of it is because we have the Whiskey Rebellion. Now, um, uh, I'd like our listeners to know that during the conference, we have a every year we have this famous um, uh, hospitality suite, and uh, Bill Batchelder and I both have a a we actually have um, a Whiskey Rebellion flag. Like it lasted long enough for them to develop their flag, and so I have one because my students bought me one one time. It's one of my prized possessions, and we put it up at the hospitality suite every year. So I had to ask about Albert Gallatin, this fascinating figure that's part of the story. Tell us what his role is in this, in, in the story you're telling and, and, and who he was. Well, Gallatin is disproof of the potted historians uh, saying that dukes don't emigrate <laughs> because Gallatin's paternal line were Italians named Galatini, and they were among the founders of Geneva in Switzerland. And over the previous, I think, three centuries, there had been five chief executives of Geneva who were named Galatini. They were his ancestors. I don't mean collateral relatives. I mean in the line from him. And on his mother's side, her, her maiden name was Durozzi. So she was a French from French aristocracy. And that these facts meant Albert Gallon went to the best schools that Switzerland had to offer. He had the most connected kind of upbringing you could have. And when he got into his late teens, he uh, decided and he told his family, this place is boring. I'm going to North America. Just out of the blue. So he and another teenage guy (laughs) got on a boat and came to North America. They didn't speak English. So Gallatin ended up teaching French at Harvard for a while. I guess that's how he learned English. And after he'd been at Harvard for a while, he'd say, yeah, you know, Boston isn't very interesting either. And they went to a couple of other places on the East Coast, and eventually they decided, Gallon, I mean, decided, he would settle in western Pennsylvania. You might think, well, if boredom was your reason for coming to North America, is western Pennsylvania the solution? But he got, yeah, so he got out there, and uh, soon after he arrived... Locals decided they were going to resist enforcement of Alexander Hamilton's whiskey excise. And he, Gallatin, ended up in a meeting where he was kind of the the minutes taker, and he wrote out a statement from these rebels. Now, Gallatin was not a violent person. He was not, by disposition, a rebel, but he did take this role in writing out their demands. And apparently when uh, President Washington handed off command of the militia units, he was marching out to western Pennsylvania to put down the rebellion to Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton had a list of some people he intended to arrest when he got there, and among the names on that list was Gallatin's. But Hamilton didn't find Gallatin, and P. 
people in western Pennsylvania were very happy with Gallatin for his role in this and other events that had been going on in western Pennsylvania. So they elected him to the lower house of the legislature, then they elected him to the upper house of the legislature, then they elected him to the U.S. House of Representatives, and he made his name as the one person in the Republican leadership who could argue finances with Hamilton. And he was a, in case you haven't already gotten this picture, Gallatin was a brilliant fellow. He, of course, Hamilton was a brilliant fellow. Hamilton's concerns, his his living, his uh, surviving writings were about government, but Gallatin was interested in a lot of things. In this, he was kind of like Jefferson. For example, like Jefferson, he was very interested in American Indians, and particularly in American Indian languages. So essentially, he knew a lot about that. He ended up being the founder of what's now New York University, which is generally reputed to be one of the five or six best universities in the United States. And if you if you're visiting New York City and you want to go see Alexander Hamilton's uh, grave, you go to Trinity Church on Broadway, and as you walk in the front gate, there to your left, about, I don't know, half a dozen paces, is a little monument that's on top of Hamilton's grave. But if you turn to your right, about the same distance to your right, is Gallatin's grave. So <laughs> the two of them ended up being right there together in death although they had essentially nothing in common in life. Um, Gallatin also was very (laughs) odd-looking. He ended up married to a woman who was bright and well-connected. Her father was a congressman, actually. And uh, he had a long, long life and more than one career as a businessman, later as an educator, but in the middle part we're most interested in. He had a very significant political career, not only in Congress, but then when Jefferson became president, it was obvious to everybody that Gallatin would be Treasury Secretary. And to this day, he remains the longest-serving major cabinet officer in American history. He was um, he was Treasury Secretary for more than 11 years. So sometimes if you ask a libertarian, well, what do you think about Andrew Jackson? If you got anything positive to say about Andrew Jackson, you would expect the answer to be, well, of course not. But they will actually say, well, he's, he's the president who paid off the debt. Andrew Jackson paid off the debt. So for one brief moment in 1835, the federal government had no debt. But I put it to you that this shouldn't really be credited to Jackson because the day that the Jackson administration paid off the federal debt was the day that that event was contemplated by the program established by Treasury Secretary Gallatin back during the Jefferson administration. All, all Jackson did was continue to make the payments that had been paid regularly ever since Gallatin's Treasury Secretary uh, incumbency. So um, he's a very interesting guy. He's, even though, as I say, he's extremely odd-looking, he, he apparently everybody found him personally appealing. He was, he was uh, just a very interesting, friendly... Um, fellow, knowledgeable fellow, besides besides having this spectacular political career. Right. Well, that sounds like a great dissertation topic uh, for somebody out there um, to dig, dig a little deeper into that. Another person that came up, I'm going to ask, this will be my second to last question here. Another person, we'll just talk about him very briefly, uh, John Armstrong Jr., the senator from New York who 
becomes American minister to France. Uh, I remember uh, briefly in the book, you talk about how uh, absurd this, this might have been, this appointment. Tell us a little bit about him. Well, the most absurd thing about him is he ends up being war secretary. <laughs> right. And the, the, probably the thing he's best remembered for now is that back during the revolution, he was the organizer of the Newburg conspiracy. So what I said, mm-hmm. I'm sitting right now in Danbury, Connecticut. If I go about 25 miles northwest from here, I get to Newburgh, New York. And that's the place where there was discussion among the General Washington's officers about having the army march down and surround the uh, building in which the Continental Congress was meeting and preventing the congressmen from leaving until they paid the soldiers, right? So, in other words, Armstrong, as a colonel in the army during during the revolution, had been the organizer of what he hoped would be a mutiny. And famously, when Washington heard about this, he went to where this was occurring. People didn't know he was coming. He walked in, strode all the way to the front of the room, kind of elbowed the guy who was standing at the lectern out of the way, looked around the room with his, with his lips pursed. Apparently he was very sad, but he was also very angry. And then finally he reached into his coat pocket and found a pair of spectacles. And famously he said, you'll excuse me, gentlemen, it seems that not only have I grown gray, but I have grown blind in the service of my country. At which point, everybody wept. Right. Armstrong was the mutineer-in-chief, <laughs> and yet he ended up being war secretary during the Madison administration. And when he was appointed war secretary, Quincy Adams wrote in his diary, which is one of the real treasures in American political history, because Quincy Adams kept the voluminous diary for decades and decades, when, when Armstrong was appointed, uh, Adams wrote, this is the, the most scandalous, the most shameful appointment ever made to the federal government. It's just like, how could it be any worse? And as, uh, as war secretary, well, actually, I should say why this happened. The reason it happened was because Armstrong had married into the Livingston family. And the way New York politics worked at the time was there were a handful of prominent families and they basically ran everything, and the Livingstons were the chief one of those families that had become uh, Republican supporters. So uh, one of them had to be put in some high position, and that meant the newly uh, related Armstrong ended up being war secretary. And uh, during the War of 1812, he's the guy whom Madison ordered to prepare approaches to D.C., that is to prepare defensive positions on particular routes the British might take if they decided to land soldiers and come try to attack Washington. The first time he told Armstrong to do this, Armstrong said, well, we don't need to do this, because if the British come up the Chesapeake, they're going to be going to Baltimore. They wouldn't come here. There's nothing here. They would go to Baltimore. That's, a, you know, the main port in the southeast. And um, so he didn't do anything. And then a few months later, Madison asked Armstrong, so have you prepared the approaches? And Armstrong gave him the same answer. And then Madison didn't follow up on this. So finally, when in 1814, the British did land troops in in Maryland to go attack Washington, D.C., there were no defensive positions on the route that they took. And ultimately, this resulted in the the, uh, consequences we talked about earlier, the British burning down all the major government buildings. In fact, apparently... Today, you can take a private tour of the White House, and if you do take a private tour, they can still show you smoke stains inside the building. Hmm. So this, this was truly ignominious, 
and it, it's a direct result of Armstrong's insubordination. Madison should have fired the guy, basically. Right. He should never have appointed him. <laughs> he was going to say, never should, never should have appointed him. Yeah, and actually, no. at, at one point in the book, I, I uh, describe a correspondence that Madison had in retirement with a younger generation member of the Lee family, and um, this guy had gone back and forth with Madison a few times because, like several people of his generation who were related to prominent revolutionaries, he had turned to writing about the revolution, and of course he wanted to feature the Lee family, but he knew Madison had known the Lees, and he knew Madison, and so the, they, they had correspondence about this. And after they'd gone back and forth two or three times, the guy said to Madison, well, you know, there's going to come some point in my book at which I'm going to have to describe your appointments. And how am I going to describe them? Because essentially <laughs> I can't think of an example of a worse group of appointments ever made by any Republican chief executive. You know, and yeah. in, the, in the history of the world, these are just awful, terrible, <laughs> unqualified generals, a guy who was a Navy secretary who was purportedly always drunk by noon and couldn't work in the afternoon and just just hideously bad appointments. And Madison, you'd think, you know, that would be the end of the correspondence. He'd never answer. This is just insulting. But instead, Madison wrote him back and he said, well, you have to understand the considerations you have to take into account in making these kinds of appointments. So in other words, he's conceding the point, which you wouldn't be able to avoid doing if you wanted to be truthful or you didn't want to be laughed at because everybody knew that the generals Madison appointed with the exceptions of William and Henry Harrison and, and Jackson, who were just kind of accidentally in, in positions, but essentially they were just so inept it was embarrassing and, yeah. and ruinous. And he also had people in his cabinet who were just worthless. Both the Navy and the War Secretaries were worthless. And uh, so he didn't even deny it. This, this helps to explain why Armstrong was appointed, right? He said, Madison said, well, factors you have to take into account are, number one, if somebody were going to be put in one of these top jobs, he would have to be essentially independently wealthy because he wasn't going to be paid anything, and he had to go live in Washington, which is just a cow pasture, and uh, he'd have to be politically connected in his home state, and you'd have to be sure he was connected to the right faction of the party so that the people who had been displeased by your appointments from from Georgia were happy with what you'd done in New York or, you know, back and forth. And he lays out these several uh, criteria, Madison does, in this letter to this Lee. And, of course, what he never says is that the guy's qualified to make policy in the area over which he's been given cognizance. And the reason is that wasn't a consideration. Mm-hmm. So it's just, just awful. The Madison administration was so ineptly run. And at one point in the book, I conclude, Madison was perfectly cut out to be the second in command. Uh, he, he, would, he could be the guy who would give good advice, and then he'd be the last fellow to read the speech, to proofread the speech before the president gave it, right? That, that really, that Madison was cut out to be Jefferson's secretary of state. Although he gave him bad advice about the, the embargo, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. But uh, anyway, it's just, it's just a debacle. I've told people that um, I think Madison's presidency was literally the low point of his career, and they can't believe me because, you know, being president, that sounds like the high point of your career. Maybe if you're only looking at it from the point of view of, I want to be a climber, you know, you've climbed all the way to the top. But it's the only position in which Madison was just a spectacular flop. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree with that. I mean, so I, I'm certainly, I have so much appreciation, and respect for Madison until his presidency, and then I think, what are you doing? 
Um, and I think this, the, your, your book has been uh, great in kind of confirming that. We've come to the, to the end of our time here. I want to give you a chance to say just one last thing. I mean, this book is a, a reservoir of, resor- of, of resources for uh, of other researchers. There's just so many places to go here. And we're often in danger of forgetting our history as Americans, uh, both the good and the bad. And I think your book has given a lot of opportunities to people who want to write, you know, go off on these other different trails, whether it's on, on Albert Gallatin or, El- or someone else. But um, what, what do you, uh, I mean, what, what do you hope will, people will take away from this book in the, in the end um, that, uh, that, that just your, your unique contribution here that uh, you, you hope that we'll, we'll get them to buy it? Oh, boy. Well, uh, I think one thing that kind of goes against today's popular wisdom is the record of these people when it came to the question of slavery, the institution of slavery. So I show particularly Jefferson and Monroe taking very substantial steps against slavery. The book begins with a crisis in Virginia concerning slavery, just as Jefferson, the vice president, is being elected president. His his political lieutenant Monroe is the governor of Virginia, when the biggest slave conspiracy in American history, which is called Gabriel's Rebellion, was breaking out around Richmond. And by the end of their correspondence about this, uh, both Jefferson and Monroe express sympathy with the, with the rebels. Essentially, Jefferson says, um, well, so long as we have slavery, we have to treat these people as criminals. Because, well, what else are we going to do? <laughs> but on the other hand, he says, anybody else would consider them heroes. And what he means by that, of course, is that if Virginia has slavery, the governor has to enforce it. And the editor of the papers of James Monroe says, in this, cons- if the, in this correspondence about Gabriel's Rebellion, we have the first instance, the first known instance ever when James Monroe says, he's Governor Monroe at this point, when he says, he looks forward to the day when Virginia will no longer have slavery. But if you're the governor of Virginia and there's a slave rebellion, and by the way, the conspiracy's goal was to kidnap Monroe. Um, yeah, so they hope to kidnap the governor and then negotiate with white Virginians the end of slavery in return for giving the governor back. And so uh, before the correspondence between the governor and the vice president begins, there have been numerous arrests of slaves in the area around several counties around Richmond, all the way down to the Atlantic, actually, on the James, numerous counties of eastern Virginia. And uh, there, have been, there have been many arrests. There have been several trials. Some of the people who are being tried have been acquitted because if you were a slave, you were going to have a good lawyer because you were valuable property. Your, your master would hire you a good lawyer. You probably have a better lawyer than the average white man would have. And um, so some of these people had been acquitted. Some people had been convicted and then pardoned by the governor. And um, ultimately, the governor moves the, uh, the punishments, the hangings, out of Richmond. He says the ladies shouldn't be seeing this. Um, but they, they both begin, Governor Monroe and President Jefferson begin, I'm sorry, Vice President Jefferson, begin uh, discussing the question, well, what can we do with these people? How, and so Jefferson has the idea, well, we obviously we can't keep them in Virginia as free people or as even as slaves. We could send them somewhere else. And that's when we have a borning, the idea that's going to come to fruition 20, nearly 25 years later in the Monroe administration of creating someplace in West Africa to which they could be sent. And that's where today's 
state of Liberia came from. Its purpose was to be a place in Africa to which slaves from the United States could be sent. So I could, you know, I could go on with this. This is a very interesting story. When Jefferson is president in 1806 in his State of the Union message, which was an annual note the president sent to Congress, he proposed that since the Constitution said Congress could not bar importation of such persons as the states may see fit to import, meaning slaves, until 1808, Jefferson says in his 1806 State of the Union message, you should pass a bill... Uh, adopting this policy, banning slave imports beginning in 1808, in your 1806 and 7 session, I'll sign it. It can go into effect as soon as the Constitution allows, and that's what happened. So as soon as the Constitution gave Congress power to import sla- uh, stop importing of slaves, Congress did so on Jefferson's uh, suggestion. And there are several other places in the book where we see the two of them, and Madison actually, um, doing th- significant things against slavery. This, I think, goes completely contrary to kind of popular uh, popular talk now about how these guys were all a bunch of phonies. They, they said men were created equal, but really they thought owning slaves was great. None of them thought owning slaves was great. They, they worked actively against it. They did important things against it. By the end of the book, we've had also the Missouri crisis in which... Um, President Monroe ends up signing off on uh, a resolution to the crisis that, according to John Randolph of Roanoke, the congressman from Virginia, means there will be an end of slavery eventually because um, all those states in Louisiana Territory are going to come into the Union without slavery. They'll have anti-slavery senators. Eventually they'll vote for an amendment that will mean the end of slavery. And Monroe wasn't averse to that. Right? He thought that was a possibility and good. So... Uh, I do think in this area, as in some of the ones we were talking about before, the book can stand to be read by people who just want to know more about the country, and it'll show them that there's not nearly as much villainy in the past as they've been told in recent years. Yeah, it's a much-needed correction in, in a time when we, we, we need to just get a, an honest look at these sources. It's not all, it's not all pretty, but it's not all uh, terrifying either. It's not the uh, disaster we think. Um, well, thank you so much, Kevin. This I love this. I could talk about this stuff forever. Um, and I, I want to encourage all our listeners to take a look at the book. It is a it is a treasure like all of Kevin's books. Um, so be sure to check it out on Amazon or wherever you get your books. I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. Um, so thank you, Kevin. And uh, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, we encourage you to check us out for our next uh, annual conference at, at Plano, Texas at the Hope Center, uh, February 29th through March 2nd. Um, in 2024. Uh, Take a look at the website, sign up for the newsletter, and you'll get some more information on that as well. Um, Once again, this is the Ciceronian Society, uh, the SOWER podcast. Check us out at ciceroniansociety.org. Thank you.